Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur. Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the City's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team. The Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison. GB Javelin Champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the Chief Exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the Chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference. My name is Andy McIntyre. I'm co-founder with Tony Fawner of VSI Executive Education. We are thrilled to be working in partnership with Frank McKenna and his fabulous team at Downtown in Business on a series of 10 podcasts focusing the business of sport. We'll be engaging with some of the industry's most influential figures at a time when the English Premier League in particular has become a truly global force. Today's guest is David Murray, who is a sports rights expert and renowned negotiator on sports rights. David, you have a fascinating story uh, and the peep inside the curtain of sport that you're going to deliver in the next few minutes, I think is going to be really fascinating. Talk me through your background and, and how you came into the circumstances that you find yourself now. Thanks, Andy. Um, it's been a fairly convoluted route, I must say. So my background originally was I studied for an economics degree uh, and found my way into initially a graduate trainee at NatWest Bank, where I lasted for two years, and then thought, well, all the jobs that I was I was looking for demanded accountancy qualifications. So at that point, I switched to become a, a chartered accountant where I worked at um, Coopers and Libra and now PwC for about five years, I think. Um, but I ended up in that in that company specialising in media clients, uh, and Channel Four was one of my my main clients there. So you were at a point in time where media and sport were about to explode and transform the game. Well, absolutely. But at the time, um, when I was at Channel 4, it wasn't really Channel 4. I, I guess they did, they did a bit of NFL, didn't they, and a bit of um, Football Italia. Uh, but the interesting thing about Channel 4 back then was it was um, 100% owned by the government. Um, but just started selling its own ads. So I was fortunate enough to go in just when they were launching their own advertising sales network. Uh, and as, as the auditor, having to try and understand how the hell it worked. And I remember, and hopefully he's not listening, I, there was this guy called Merlin, believe it or not, who was in charge of the advertising sales. And he completely bamboozled me with all this this techno babble about advertising sales. I think in the end, I got to the bottom of it, but I'll never forget Merlin uh, with his interesting name and his um, completely um, unintelligible kind of babble about things. And I think it probably taught me a lesson that um, you can never ask too many stupid questions if you <laughs> don't understand what someone's talking about. Um, so anyway, yeah, so I did... Uh, I was at Coopers and Librand, and then I moved into investment banking, where I worked for Hambro's Bank uh, in media and telecoms mergers and acquisitions. So I became even more specialised in media, but also um, the telecoms industry. And this was back in nineteen ninety-five, I think ninety-five to ninety-seven. So it was just when you had your Telewests and your NTLs and all the or part of the country being cabled up. Um, 
it was also at the time that football clubs were starting to take investments in them. So I believe ITV had a 10% share in ITV, in Manchester United, um, various other football clubs. And indeed, I remember uh, very excitedly going to visit Inter Milan to pitch them our services um, about you know, potentially listing on the stock market or taking an investment. And at the time, Inter Milan had massive debt. So I remember sitting down with them and saying, you know, you need to get all your, your balance sheet in order, your profit and loss in order, et cetera. Yeah, 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 we'll do that. Got back and two weeks later, they signed Ronaldo. <laughs> if you remember, it was the most expensive <laughs> football in the world at time. Not the, you know, Excuse me, if you, again, if you're listening, but the fat Ronaldo, not, not <laughs> yeah. the current Ronaldo. I was going to use the word the other Ronaldo, but yes. we all know exactly what you mean. Uh, so that was that was quite an eye-opener again into the world of football, is that whatever financial constraints you put in place, they just break them <laughs> anyway. Um, but the, I suppose the most interesting thing I did at, at Hambro's uh, was this was the time of the second Premier League auction. Uh, so the first auction when the Premier League launched, um, ITV and Sky bid for it. And I think Sky ended up winning, paying something like 300 million over three years from memory, uh, which was sort of 10 times higher than it had ever been done before. Uh, and Greg Dyke, who went on to become the Director General of the BBC, was, was head of London Weekend Television, as it was then. Uh, and so he was bidding against Sky. And I believe this is the case in his memoirs. He talks about how uh, ITV had their offer on the table and then Sky miraculously managed to beat it. And it was only afterwards that he appreciated that Alan Sugar, who was chairman, I think, of Tottenham, was also obviously owned Amstrad that sold all the satellite dishes to Sky. <laughs> so there was a slight conflict of interest there. So I'll go. I'll say no more. <laughs> were, there, were there raised eyebrows at the time within the industry about how Sky could spend such monies and get a return on their investment? Well, yeah. Well, it was a tremendous gamble at the yeah. time by by Sky. And again, back then, I think that there was. I'll probably get the names wrong, but there were two satellite companies rivaling each other. There was BSB, which was British Satellite Broadcasters, I think, and then Sky. And then they they weren't not both of them were losing money, so they merged to become. I think it was B Sky B at the time, and then went on to be Sky. Uh, And it was absolutely the acquisition of Premier League football that, that really propelled them forward. And, and demonstrated that sport, in particular football, is is the best um, product for getting new subscribers in. Sports and movies. So when this revolution was going on here, it was definitely the catalyst for the Premier League to be the preeminent league in the world. Were you aware of the Inter Milan's and the Italian clubs looking at, at this at that point enviously and looking to replicate? Not quite, but again, I think the reason that Inter Milan were keen to speak to us when we went over to, to see them was that they could see what was happening in this country and the investment beginning to go in into football. Um, but for that first Sky auction, um, it was very much a gamble by the Premier League, which was a new body and who knew whether anyone would even watch it on Sky. I've, um, see, I've seen Rick Parry's uh, 12 points on his written on the back of a... A uh, kind of piece of paper that would form the, the foundation for the contract between the clubs, and uh, it, it was a landmark in the game. And the, I think the interesting thing—I don't know your view on it—is the competitive balance that was enshrined in the agreement in terms of the spread of, of revenues from the clubs made it the most competitive league in the world. No, absolutely. You only need to look at the other leagues around the world to see you know, the relative parity within the Premier League, which is based around the sharing of income, um, which is essential, I think, to the DNA of the Premier League. And clearly some of the bigger teams now want to try and move away from that. Just, just remind everybody what, what what was at the heart of that income, so how it, how it was spread between the clubs in that first contract. Yeah, this is customer my mind back a long way. Um, but I believe it was done a third, a third, a third. So a third was just straight 
you know, the revenue split equally amongst the 20 teams. A third was based on your finishing position in the league and a third was based on the number of times you were shown um, on TV. So in essence, Southampton could beat a Liverpool on their day because there wasn't such a disparity in revenues. Match day revenues became less important than they had been previously with, with broadcast revenues being the key income for clubs. Well, match day revenues, yeah, have become less and less important as the broadcast revenue has gone higher and higher, which is why you now see clubs like Brighton doing phenomenally well, considering they're, they're relatively small. Bournemouth surviving in the Premier League on a crowd yeah. of 11,000. You no longer have to be, you know, a inverted commas big club to compete. Um, obviously, you know, the Champions League revenue makes a huge difference at the top of the league, mm. uh, as do, you know, um, the, 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 the Sky deal requires them to show certain clubs to twice, everybody to twice. Yeah. Um, so Man United will always get shown more than Bournemouth, so they'll always get that benefit of the extra revenue and they'll generally finish much higher than them. And then on top of that, you've obviously got commercial revenue. and um, How does it compare with the distribution of revenues, for example, in La Liga? Certainly the way La Liga's changed relatively recently, but it used to be that Barcelona and Real Madrid just sold their own rights mm. and most of the money clearly in Spain was in Barcelona and Real Madrid, which is why they had a massive advantage, apart from the fact that bigger crowds and everything as well. Now that's changed because La Liga recognised that without more parity, um, I think round about the time of the financial crisis when clubs were going bust, I remember going to Valencia, funnily enough, for a MotoGP race and Got to get back onto the rest of my career at some point. But going to Valencia for a MotoGP race and they were building a new stadium or had been building a new stadium and it was just half built because clubs at that point in Spain were were, were really struggling as, as was the Spanish economy at that time. Well, Valencia as a city was struggling, wasn't it? Um, so they brought in new rules to share, try and share the TV revenue more equally. Um, of course, you're not starting... The, the beauty of the Premier League was you were starting with a clean piece of paper. When you're starting at a position where Barcelona and Real Madrid have all the money, they're never going to say, I'll tell you what, we'll just split it all. So they brought in... And I can't remember the exact details, but it was a sort of ratchet where Barcelona and Real Madrid kept what they already had. And then incremental revenues were then shared broadly between the clubs. So they adopted a model like the Premier League, but based on incremental revenues going forward. So it means that the other way of looking at it is Barcelona and Real Madrid have their natural advantage baked in. Yeah. Uh, so it's the right idea, but yeah, the Premier League, I think you said it, the Premier League started just as TV revenues kicked off and were able to uh, put their structure together but before anyone was able to fall out yeah. about it. Yeah. The competitive balance, as you use the word hard bait, the competitive balance was to a certain degree hard bait, all those potentially threatened at the moment. But let's go back to your career that I uh, interrupted. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so I was about to get on to the second Premier League auction while I was at Hambro's Bank, uh, but we got sidetracked by Alan Sugar and his <laughs> satellite dishes. Um <laughs> So the second auction, um, we advised the Mirror Group and Carlton TV, which was the London weekend, uh, the, the London weekday franchise. Believe it or not, there was a weekend franchise and a weekday franchise uh, to bid for the Premier League rights against Sky, um, bearing in mind that ITV had lost out the previous time. Um, and... You know, it's, it's all quite hazy because this was back in about 1996 now. Uh, we got the cable companies on board as well. And the idea was there would be a, a minimum guarantee figure, which was something like £600 million. So twice what Sky paid on the previous auction. Uh, and then a profit share with the, the, the understanding or, or the basis was that the Premier League and 
this bidding edit entity would become jo- a joint venture partners in a new company, you know, Premier League Television. Uh, and so the Premier League would share 50% of you know, all TV value moving forward from that point. So it was quite radical. We felt doubling the money and then sharing the sharing the profits was a, <laughs> a good way to do it. Now, of course... You know, the aim was also to stick it onto the the, uh, the cable channels, but it was inconceivable that Sky wouldn't have bought the product mm. because otherwise Sky would have disappeared more or less overnight. Um, but in the end, I think, and again, I can't remember the exact numbers, but Sky didn't bid a lot more, some, maybe 700 million, right. not a lot more, uh, but ended up still winning it yeah. because... The football chairman would rather just have the cash in hand <laughs> to buy the next player without that kind of strategic vision of what, what could be done. So the speculative element of the, of the profit share wasn't something that... Well, again, you know, it could go wrong, but then they'd taken the gamble on Sky. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, potentially there were some conflicts of interest there again, um, which it's probably best not to go into on a, on a podcast. Uh, but if you think about Sky was eventually sold by you know, Murdoch to Comcast, and I can't remember the exact figure again, but say twenty bit for twenty billion, um, you know, ten billion of that could have been the Premier League's, yeah. which is an extraordinary story that hasn't been so widely told. Well, I suspect most people just don't know about it, yeah. and it's being conveniently swept under the rug. I was fascinated when you told. Uh, VSI's CEO of a sports organisation students this exact story that they could have been sitting on their own TV business production business and that was 1996 so we're talking 27 years ago Um, previous management not the several managements ago (laughs) and and I suspect an awful lot of those clubs who voted on it are no longer in the Premier League yeah absolutely so at this point in time were your eyes uh, personally, be opening to the real potential of, of where TV rights and sport could go. Absolutely. Uh, and then after Hambro's, I moved on to work for the BBC, uh, where initially I joined their what they called their corporate finance department, but it was about um, scrutinising how they spent their money. Um, so looking at a whole range of different things and making recommendations. Were you, were you able to be entrepreneurial in that environment, working for the BBC, as uh, opposed to working for a bank? Or well, uh, I suppose once once I got onto the next stage of my career, which I'll, yeah. you keep trying to get me to jump ahead, <laughs> do you? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm interested in your mindset in joining the BBC. Yeah, I certainly joined with an entrepreneurial mindset because I'd come from essentially the dog-eat-dog world of investment banking. Mm. Where was, uh, well, I can't remember what Gordon, Gordon Gecko said, but I'm sure he said something quite pithy, not just lunch and wimps, but, you know, today's whatever is tomorrow's dog food or something, <laughs> yeah. you know what yeah. I mean. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I part, part of that job was, was looking at how the BBC spent its money on sports rights um, and... At this point, it was just things which is because Sky were obviously coming into their own, becoming much more competitive to to the mainstream TV channels like BBC and ITV that up until then had it all their, their own way. So the BBC was suddenly under tremendous pressure to win rights mm. as Sky kept hoovering them up. Um, although at this point, they didn't have nearly as much as, as they did a few years later. Cricket was still on Channel 4. Obviously, Formula One was, was on ITV. FA Cup was on, I think at that point, ITV seemed to jump to BBC. Six and eight. So most of, this, most of the sport that is on pay TV now is probably still on free to air. But you could see that the trouble brewing and the people running sports rights acquisition side were ex-production people who happened to then take on that role and a lot of it prior to Sky was going out to lunch with a particular sport saying here's the deal <laughs> <laughs> yeah it could be argued that BBC and ITV um, almost colluded to 
divvy things up mm. so there was no real competition it was only sky that shook that up so they were the real disruptor in the marketplace oh the first the first massive disruptor uh and of course also at that point you had mobile phones beginning to take off the internet beginning to take off so not only were sports rights suddenly just about well what tv channel do i put it on you had all these other elements to them different distribution platforms and at that point sports bodies were trying to carve them all up so you could buy separate mobile rights separate internet rights separate um tv rights um so i i managed to you know use my my position in corporate finance to land myself a job helping the bbc manage this ever complex world of of sports rights and actually thinking about the different platforms one of the first things that we did and i think it's i think the bbc was pretty much a leader in this was saying we will buy the rights for all platforms so it's it's ridiculous selling mobile rights internet rights tv rights um because the lawyers were just tying themselves in knots trying to define what is a mobile right versus what is an internet right versus what it, Today, it seems like an absolute no-brainer because, of course, you watch everything on any device that you want. But back then, people saw money in, in, in carving them up. It was only by kind of driving a coach and horses through the legal definitions. It's, well, why don't we just be really simple here and say we buy specific rights packages yeah. for any platform. And that, believe it or not, you know, in the early 2000s was quite radical. At that point in time, would you be selling international rights separately as well? Oh, yes. Yeah. No. So the right. Yeah. So the, the thing about TV is it's always been very territorial because ultimately, you know, originally you had a TV transmitter and you could only get it within certain boundaries. And then, of course, you had language as well on top of that. Um, the BBC, I think, was always... Uh, accessible in in Belgium in Holland uh, through cable transmission there and you could probably sit in Calais with a big aerial and pick it up so when you bought those rights that gave you the opportunity to, to, to broadcast into Belgium and well the, the, there was what it's what's called overspill so they were received in Belgium and there's nothing that anyone could do about it but the really big um, overspill as you were if you if you like happened with sky with a satellite dish but you could stick a satellite dish up in south of spain and get sky because their satellite footprint was was over most of europe yeah um of course sky always denied that you could get it in spain but you just needed to go into any bar <laughs> and see sky on with um obviously you know in theory people had subscribed in the uk and taken their their box out there but this guy didn't really try too hard to stop it should we say um but but yeah you rights have always been sold territory by territory and, and still are uh but it, that will change um just because of the way that see digital technology works now there's no barrier uh, but also the rise of the, the digital players like amazon or Google, etc. Um, it's only a matter of time before they start taking out rights on a global basis, and indeed Apple have done that with MLS. So you see them as a, the next disruptor in the market, or the current disruptor? I th as things currently stand, but the way, um, <laughs> without going off piste here, you know, AI and chat gpt and all of this yeah. is potentially the biggest market disruptor because who knows you know, if the google lose their search engine and it no longer becomes you know, the best in the marketplace google might not be <laughs> well certainly won't be the force that it is today um but apple i think yeah all things being equal apple is the the one the the one digital player i think that's got the most to gain by getting into sports because it has a relatively small TV footprint. It wants to expand that TV. You, know, you can keep creating expensive dramas till the cow comes home, but does it really differentiate you from what everybody else is offering? Whereas if 
if, for example, they were to buy the Premier League, everyone who likes the Premier League would have to buy Apple. And you know exactly what you're getting. So whereas it, you know, it may be a very expensive investment, but you know the audiences that you're going to get. Yeah. Whereas if you spend a billion dollars on Lord of the Rings, as Amazon did, if it's rubbish, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a billion dollars down the drain. Now we're talking quantums of that for the mm. Premier League, uh, but it's at least it's a it's we've gone from the point of Sky in the first auction to it being a massive risk. I don't think it's a huge risk to take now for a, a global digital player to to go down that route, and I don't think it would be as big a risk for the Premier League to enter enter into some sort of joint venture with with an Apple, for instance. Well, I was going to ask you about that, because even beyond a joint venture, would there be any advantage afforded to the Premier League by deciding we're going to control and actually become a broadcaster ourselves? Absolutely. And this is always the threat that they've made to keep the lights of Sky in order when the bids come round. Even if Sky is the only bidder, the threat has always been, well, if you don't, meet our expectations, we'll do it ourselves. Um, now, in the UK, uh, because of the way that the, the market has, has evolved, Sky aren't just buying this, the football for pure football reasons. They're buying it to sell their mobiles, their broadband, mm. everything else that they do. Sky is now a total package of various products that they sell. Football, Premier League is the battering ram to sort of sell them. So when BT came into the market um, about three auctions ago, the price went through the roof and BT were coming in because they wanted to sell broadband off the back of it because Sky were eating into their broadband. And BT obviously had a lot to lose because they had virtually 100% of the market at one point and now it's considerably less than that. Has, has that been a successful strategy for them? Uh, it could be argued maybe it, it served a purpose for a while, but they've consistently lost money on, on BT Sport, uh, as, hence they tried to sell, but were unable to sell it 100%, so now entered into this joint venture with, mm. to get the name right, um, Discovery Time Warner or Time Warner Discovery yeah. to be, to form this new company called TNT, which mm. is what they landed it. Uh, but the problem with competing against Sky, as ITV Digital found, and Satanta found, and ESPN found, and now BT Sport have found, is being the second player in the market generally doesn't make you mm. any money. Uh, in fact, loses you lots of money. And BT Sports consistently lost money. Now, whether they made up for that through extra broadband sales, it's hard to say, but presumably it got to a point where it didn't, hence they wanted to get rid of it. So this must have rep represented a huge challenge to you at the BBC. How do we compete and where do we sit? For sure. Um, and, yeah, I remember vividly being where, you know, where I was when I heard that BT had one, um, I think it was two Premier League packages at the time, and the price, the overall price had gone up by 70%. Uh, and just a, a story about that, um, if you want, again, thinking back to Premier League, I'll use skullduggery in very loose terms, <laughs> uh, legitimate business tactics, should we call <laughs> So in the first, so BT had kept it totally quiet that they were bidding for Premier League. Uh, and... Apparently, they were ahead in five or seven packages after the first round of bidding. Wow. Um, the benefit of being the incumbent, i.e. Sky, is that the Premier League then didn't award those packages and went back to Sky and said, we well, need to sharpen your pencil, yeah. which is a legitimate tax. So they just they use them to them. leverage their deal. So they use BT to leverage um, the deal so that uh, Sky ended up with five packages and BT got two. Uh, having pushed the price up by 70%. Um, and interestingly enough, when BT bid for the Champions League, possibly the next year, and won it, they'd gone to the Champions League beforehand, or the team who were the agents for the agents, and said, what's the price? If 
we meet the price, you need to award us the rights because we're not being patsies again. So they were given the number and they hit the number. So they'd learnt their lesson and secured their... their They'd learnt the lesson and despite everything Sky said about, oh, we don't really want it, they behind the scenes, they would have thrown the kitchen sink at it (laughs) to hang on to it. Um, So BT learnt the lesson and actually it worked out quite well for, for all football rights holders having two relatively solid players in the marketplace because it kept Sky on their toes. Uh, saying that, BT and Sky then reached a wholesaling agreement, which kind of eliminated a lot of the competition from the marketplace. And so they could each show each other's channels. So why bid against each other if you can show each other's channels? So since then, the market's been pretty flat. But now you've got new entrants like zone potentially um, via play um, and possibly Apple. So the Premier League auction you know, this time around could get quite interesting again because there's nothing like competition to drive price. Now, the one thing that the BBC has retained... Sorry, I didn't answer, answer your question. How the BBC dealt with all of that? Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say, I mean, match of the day remains almost uh, still a protected asset at the BBC. We've seen recently... When the, uh, the the furore around the Gary Lineker uh, tweets, it was evident that there was a massive public passion remaining still for Match of the Day to be ring fenced as an asset that stayed with the BBC. Well, the, the Match of the Day, the Premier League again with, and by the way, the Premier League are probably the canniest business operators, certainly in the UK. The way they've structured their, their processes is, um, and they were quite clever in that they withheld the highlights rights to only be available to free-to-air broadcasters because they realised if all the live matches were on satellite, uh, it could just disappear, as we've seen with sports. It's harder for football to disappear, but by by allowing those highlights to go onto the BBC, because Sky would have, particularly at that time, where their whole business model was about exclusivity, Sky would have rather there was no football pictures at all on stream TV. Because there's no question that the sports are damaged by being removed from free to view. For sure. Cricket, sports need, need need the oxygen of publicity. Yeah. Uh, now I think broadcasters or, or pay broadcasters are a little bit more relaxed now because they appreciate well a bit of light, a bit of free to wear gives mm. you some promotion for or what you're actually offering yeah. the public. But Match of the Day, for instance, was getting audiences of four or five million, um, whereas a game on Sky was maybe getting a million. So it was, you know, that's changed quite a lot. And quite frankly, I was shocked to see the kind of audiences Match of the Day now gets off the back of Gary Lineker, so it's sort of two million. Um, although that won't include any of the iPlayer. They did have a record audience, funny enough, when they had no TV pundits. And, they um, did. It's interesting how that that number's fallen a lot, but of course the highlights are available now pretty much as soon as the game finishes, so there's less need to to tune in to match of the day as as there was. So does does that mean that sacred cow could eventually come unstuck with the BBC and someone decides the money they're paying is too much? Well, it's a tough call because it's so essential to everything they do around football. If you think of football focus uh, and the clips that they use on that and all the radio stuff that they do Premier League football is a bit like Sky fairly central to sports proposition but the kind of money they pay um, is north of 70 million a year that's that's publicised so I can tell you what it is is an awful lot of money when you think that ITV for instance would to show it, could that money be used when they're facing real financial constraint? Could that money be used across a range of other sports, for instance? But is that a debate now, going on in the BBC at the moment? I'm sure it is. Now, the the beauty of football is it, it reaches a hard-to-reach younger audience, um, which most of the BBC's other product doesn't reach. So if you have a universal licence fee, if you don't watch, if someone doesn't watch anything on the BBC, it's quite hard to convince them to part mm. with their money. That's where 
sports like football, sports in general, but also football, really important to the BBC because if you took sports off the BBC, then you'd lose that chunk of people, I suspect, like you, um, who, who, you know, one of the few things that they watch on the BBC. I mean, if I think about, uh, you know, my own 20-year-old son, he wouldn't sit down and watch Match of the Day. He's watching goal highlights from all over the world on his phone. Well, it's a real issue around younger people. So my, my kids don't watch TV. As you say, they just watch YouTube or Netflix or, or whatever, but wouldn't sit down and watch. I suspect if there was a live game on the BBC, he'd struggle to know how to watch it. Um, and we'd probably watch it on some illegal stream because it was easier to find. Yeah. So, so when you think it's a public broadcaster that compels people to pay for a licence, it's a challenge to justify £70 million. Well, it's a challenge. It will be, it's a more existential question for the BBC is how do you ask my son's now 17 when he leaves home and has his own TV how do you ask him to pay money to watch something that he's never watched yeah. and that's the, that's the real challenge that the BBC's got I threaten to take to take him to court if he doesn't pay yeah so you know and I don't think there's any right answer to how you resolve that question um, you know, the BBC obviously are trying to programming towards a younger audience. Mm. Personally, I'm not convinced that works because the younger audience still don't watch the BBC. And what happens is you upset your older audience that are your hardcore yeah. BBC viewers. I understand from Australian cricket that the big bash there that's on free-to-air has had a massively positive effect with young people and traditional cricket fans alike. Have you any knowledge of, of that? Yeah, well, the, the Big Bash was scheduled in the summer during prime time. Um, so it was on, I can't remember what channel it's on now, but it started off on Channel 10, which is one of the, the big terrestrial channels yeah. there. And it was on between you know, 7 and 10 or 8 and 11, something like that, every night during the summer. Um, so kids would watch it on and, and cricket's probably a bigger sport in Australia than it is in UK anyway so it's something like having a football game on every night mm. so people started watching it um, yeah, it's a great success I think it's struggled a little bit lately because I think they've, they've created extra games and they've moved some of it now onto pay TV because obviously you know, there's more money, um, but they've perhaps diluted the product. There's something to be said about a really short, sharp summer's worth of yeah. entertainment, which is obviously what the 100 is trying to achieve, but the 100 weren't able to put it all on terrestrial TV, A, because I suspect that TV didn't want it, because um, it wouldn't get the same kind of audiences that it gets in Australia, but also... All their money came from Sky. So to suddenly create something new and take it off Sky, Sky would go, well, that's fine, but give you the money that you used to get. In contrast with uh, Star TV and their coverage of two, two major assets, the IPL, the Premier League. So they, they've clearly defined what their offering is. Do you want to talk us through a little bit about the IPL and the, and the monetization through broadcasting? That product. Well, the IPL is is you know, it must be one of the fastest growing sports when it comes to TV revenue there is, and that always shocks people because they're focused on the on the Premier League. But my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the women's IPL is now the represents the most expensive female sports franchise in the world, without doubt. Uh, and you know, it's argued by many that the IPL per game now is the most expensive sports right in no. the world. Wow. Um, obviously, it's over quite a narrow yeah. window. Um, it depends how you you have to you have to define it in certain mm. quite narrow definitions because obviously every game of the IPL mm. is broadcast, whereas the Premier League, um, if you take all the Premier League games, they aren't all broadcast. Um, but, you know, the IPL's gone from, I remember 
when I was at the BBC, somebody came in and said, we, you know, we're interested in buying the IPL. <laughs> <laughs> What's that all about? Uh, to now, uh, I think in the last auction, it went something like $2 billion over four or five years or something like that. And you just need to see the, the values of the new franchises when they were sold. Um, one of them was almost a billion dollars. So it's not quite Glacier Man United territory, but from a standing start not that long ago. With the six-week season. And it's going to compete. It's now up to two months. So they've added, it's gone from eight to 10 teams. There's two months. You can see it continuing to grow and sucking players and um, TV scheduling time from, from around the world. Um, now people always say the bubble is going to burst on TV sports rights, but American investors in particular are targeting the Premier League because they feel clubs are still undervalued. There's more to come. So using all your wealth of experience, cast your eye forward, look into your crystal ball, tell me where you think the game is going in the next five, ten years in terms of broadcast. Okay, and it may not be five or ten years, because I remember you know, what we think is happening right in the middle of things isn't necessarily the reality. It's, it can take longer to happen, but crystal ball gazing. Um, my view is that the Premier League will become the global football league. Um, out unless something seismic happens. Is it not already the global football league? Well, at the moment, it's still just played in the UK. Right, so you mean it'll and be physically? Potentially, played. potentially. Uh, the reason all these American investors want to invest in the Premier League, uh, as well as you know, some of these nation states, is A, because it has that global footprint. It's, it's by far the biggest global sport in the only league that compares to it's the NFL, which is still very, very American focused. Yeah, the Premier League now is getting substantial rights fees from America, and NBC are now showing a live game on their channel. You just need to look at the hype around the Premier League now in America. It's yeah. incredible. Um, so I think that will continue to grow. It will continue to get bigger than the other leagues, relatively speaking. It will grow compared to Spain. Spain is probably its own only real challenger now, uh, which of course is why Spanish and the Italian clubs want this European Super League to try and rein the Premier League in. Well, the competitive balance in the Champions League has been substantially compromised by the disparity in TV revenues that the big clubs are securing. It has. Up until now, the big clubs have kept up because they take so much more such a bigger share of their own TV markets. Um, so, so the Premier League will continue to grow. I think TV-wise, it's only a matter of time before there's some sort of global rights deal. Um, so you could, you could see Man United playing Arsenal in Mumbai on a Sunday afternoon as a Premier League fixture. I don't know about that. Um, but I could see potentially Man United being owned by the Mumbai Indians. <laughs> <laughs> but we've already got NFL games and the Jaguars who have the yeah, common ownership with Fulham. It's very difficult. It, 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 I think if it could be done logistically, yes, but what we've seen from the NFL is it's very difficult to play more than one game in different time zones and when you know given the volume of football games you sort you see things like the world club championships it kind of messes everybody's seasons up so i think the fans particularly would be resistant um more likely is perhaps um, can i interrupt you there the fans is it the kind of 40 something generation of fans who would be resistant whereas the that soon to be kind of 30 something fans Culturally, from a different era, would be, would be less resistant. Well, might be excited by it. It's a very interesting question: is who are the fans? Are yeah. the fans the people who go to watch the games in person, or are they the hundreds of millions of people that watch you and support you around the world who currently aren't really monetized? Which is the interest of 
the Glazers and um, Todd Bowley and all these guys is, you know, if you've got half a billion Man United fans, you're not getting anything out of them. Um, so how do you truly globalise the sport? Commercial terms, I think, is the first challenge. Uh, and how do you, you know, of course, they want to try and restrict relegation and promotion which is not really an issue for these big teams at the moment because yeah man united is never going to be relegated in, in practice but you know could you see a day where the barcelona's and your real madrid's give up on la liga join the premier league could you have a premier league of instead of top seven is it now you mm. could have a top 15 mm. perhaps um so once you, then suddenly there's a risk of getting relegated and perhaps they might move to a different structure. Um, I think it'd be very difficult to move to <clears throat> no relegation, certainly in our lifetime. So we're getting on a bit. So <laughs> let's say that's <laughs> Speak in for the yourself. Next, next 25 years. I mean, that's, um, that's actually a serious point, isn't it? Because I think one of the barriers, one of the limitations on values of, of sports franchises in, in this country is the very fact that you could fall off a cliff. Whereas in the MLS or in NFL, NBA, you have a franchise that sits in a league permanently. I think what might happen is, and it's interesting to see where the Premier League and the Football League get to, is you could have a Premier League 2, which is effectively the championship, plus some others. Mm -hmm. Um where there's no relegation from that mm. league, um, but you, there's promotion between the two. But as a broadcaster, you're going to want third-tier teams such as Sheffield Wednesday and Portsmouth in that Premier League. Well, yes, you would, you would. You need to take a strategic view almost, mm. which again would be quite difficult. Teams that aren't part mm. of it, but you almost need to take a strategic view. Well, we need, as you said, Sheffield Wednesday in there. Middlesbrough or whoever the the big teams are. But then getting back to your original point, um, does it really, you know, we talk about them as being big teams because they get big crowds. But in the TV, in a global TV market, does it really matter? What's perhaps more important is what's the global footprint of some of these teams? Well, so was, someone like Rangers or Celtic. You took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, Rangers and Celtic, their global footprint is substantial. We'd add a lot more to the Premier League than Middlesbrough. Yeah, I, I don't want to get in trouble with Middlesbrough. <laughs> but it's but it's the case, isn't it? I mean, both Celtic and Rangers, the the broadcast revenues in Scotland are are modest to say the least. But it'd be transformational if they're playing um, outside so, of. Scotland. So the question for Rangers and Celtic is: Is it worth swapping their dominance in Scotland for perhaps being a middle of the road team in a bigger league? But then ultimately. If you're not in it, yeah. as it continues to grow, you become more and more relevant. So anyone who can buy a ticket should buy a ticket. So you referenced uh, the, the kind of non-monetized fan base in Manchester United. We have a, a colleague, Dr. Rob Wilson, who does a lot of uh, teaching with our delegates. And he estimates it to be 650 million Man United fans who they, who they are generating any f money from which is why the kind of the Glaziers are, whilst they're formally selling, they have second, you know, they, they have doubts about selling and why people are prepared to pay, um, uh, you know, just under the six billion pounds because they believe there's such an audience that is unmonetized. Mm -hmm. Must be the case with Rangers and Celtic as well. Absolutely. And that's where, again, where if you get back to the sort of Apple, and I'm using Apple as an example, but the, direct to consumer model where the Premier League can set using a partner sells its TV rights around the world digitally, it then has a digital relationship with everybody who's watching it. And that's billions of people. Where at the moment it's got no relationship with any of them. So it can't it doesn't know who those six hundred and fifty thousand million people are or if it does their kind of likes on Instagram or, or something. Um, but if it can directly interact with them digitally through a global digital platform, just think of the power of that, Absolutely. which is why that will come at some point. 
And suddenly, guys sitting in Mumbai watching Man United, you can sell the merchandising tickets, um, virtual experiences. Metaverse. Yeah, anything. Uh, gambling, yeah. <laughs> whatever you want. Um, and so it suddenly that person who's worth a pound at the moment is suddenly worth hundreds of pounds. Now, we're running this this podcast, VSI and Downtown in Business in, in Partnership, and Downtown's very much about strategic engagement between the public sector, private sector in the key cities of the country. Sport is delivering huge monies to those cities. Um, do you anticipate the increase in broadcast will anyway diminish the revenues that are being generated on match day in Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester, Birmingham, London? I don't think so. Um, I think the live experience is 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 a different experience. Um, you know, people are getting more and more into experiences over things. Mm. Um, as either they got more disposable income or things become mm. less important. If you look at, say, the music industry, you know, bands make all their money now through touring rather than yeah. selling records. Uh, so the key thing for sport is to create a really great match day experience, which is something football could actually work harder yeah. on. Um, you look at something like the hundred, which is trying to build that day experience so families and kids and things feel comfortable there you look at a basketball state or, or american sports generally do it far better than than we do um challenge there is they, they charge for it as well don't they you want to do. go watch denver broncos and it's an expensive afternoon out but people still will pay for it obviously they've got more money that they're prepared to spend on it but to your question um I think there's there's still huge value on cities becoming you know, associated with, with sport. Mm-hmm. One example, and I do some work with the snooker in Sheffield, with the Crucible is synonymous with mm-hmm. all the World Championships is synonymous with the Crucible in, in Sheffield, and um, you know one of the one of the, the drivers of the universities there really expanding is the flux of Chinese students because snooker's got a big market in China and the investment in the city and the students and everything is a lot of that's off the back of of that. But if we take Liverpool as, as a case it's in question. It's a perfect example. Most people have heard of the Liverpool because of the Beatles or the football team. Um, same with Manchester. Um, the football, you know, obviously the football teams. So that association, if you take it, you know, the cricket, Around the world, people know Mumbai because of it. Bollywood is based in Mumbai, but, yeah. but cricket Indians. fans will know it's the Mumbai Indians. Yeah. And very much in terms of the business community of Liverpool, they fall great advantage by the profile the city has around the world on the back, on the back of the, the Liverpool. Football. Oh, no doubt. Because if you look at Liverpool, if you took the sport away from it, Liverpool is a city. And again, I, I'm going to You've got to be careful killed. here. Yeah. Um, it's not a particularly big city yeah, no, it's, it's, or influential city, but it's the football that, mm. that gives it its resonance around the world. The football is, as I said, is the Beatles. So you compare... Perhaps I'll throw Silla Black in as well. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you compare Birmingham, for example, as a city in scale, it's much more modest than Liverpool, but in terms of international profile, arguably substantially greater. Yeah, well, Birmingham's a much bigger city than Liverpool, but... Nobody, you know, it doesn't have that same cut through because it doesn't have a, a dominant sports team. In. So, as an entrepreneur, by the way, that's that's one of the reasons why you know, Birmingham bid for the Commonwealth Games, and I know they're doing a lot of work now on legacy and trying to develop the sporting side. I thought they did an exceptional job at the Commonwealth Games. It was a superb event, um, spectacularly well attended, with an unbelievable social media footprint. Um, so certainly. Sports put cities on the map. Well, look at the Olympics in Barcelona. In was ninety two, was it? Um, before then, Barcelona felt like a, a backwater Spanish yeah. town. Catalan. Yeah, and, and then suddenly it became a, a global city. Um, is it any coincidence that the football team 
started to do much better off off the back of that. And now it's the football team that everybody knows. But back then it was yeah, the Olympics really put it on the map. One final question. At your heart, whatever you might say, you're an entrepreneur. I can see your face light up when you see the opportunity to innovate in terms of sports rights and the negotiation. Um, where would you put your money on the next big financial uh, change in, in sport? Um, I think the biggest potential area is in grassroots sport around the technology now to cover live grassroots sports is there. Yeah, the infrastructure is there to you know, live stream it onto your TV through YouTube or whatever platform. Uh, I think it's going to be a real threat to establish big sport, apart from the really big stuff, because if you can sit at home and watch your kids playing sport in a muddy field in the middle of nowhere or two football teams that you're not interested in, you'll pick your kids yeah. every time. Now, you might just get... 20 people watching that stream which costs nothing to produce once you've got the kit and it won't be long before you just do it off your phones anyway um 20 people watching that but then if you've got thousands if not hundreds of thousands of similar events going on around the country that's taking a huge audience away from your established sports and by bundling all that together then there's huge sponsorship and revenue creating so for me, that's that's kind of the big the big and, idea, and, and that's something that's a fabulously interesting concept, and also one that you would think, because of grassroots sport being seen as wholesome and attractive, lots of people would be interested in investing and spending to be aligned with it. Yeah, no, that's that's a big growth area, and the other, I think it, it's not yet, but it will be, and I think um, women's sport is, is definitely one to watch because it's coming from such a low base that mm. you just need to look at the IPL over the last few weeks to see the potential if it's done properly and the talent is there. It's just as exciting as, as men's sport. An international level, uh, women's football has become hugely popular, very successful. What does it, what does it need to do to, to uh, grow the club game? I've been saying for a long time now with regard to women's sport, if you build it, they will come. So it needs the initial investment to make it look really good. People will come. So the big breakthrough in women's football is the women's Euros mm. a few years back. Why was that? Well, A, the stadiums were all direct. They were in proper stadiums. The stadiums were all dressed like the men's Euros. And the BBC showed every game on mainstream TV as if it was a men and had all the surround sound around it and it felt like a genuine tournament. You look at the IPL, the women's IPL, it feels like it's just the same as the men's. Oh, yeah, the atmosphere. The atmosphere is amazing. Um, the problem with women's football at the moment and a lot of other women's sport, and by the way, football's well ahead of the game, but because it's not being played in big stadiums, and it, the, it, which will then attract the crowds. It gets back to the match day experience. Mm -hmm. How do you make it a fantastic match day experience? How does Man City play their games at the Etihad rather than the, the other state, the mini stadium that they've got? Uh, if you can get the crowds there, then suddenly it becomes a much more exciting TV product because audiences aren't stupid. Mm -hmm. If they're watching a game, I remember watching... Yeah, a few years back, six a Six Nations game, and it felt like there's two men and a dog watching it because it was just in a field. You look at that and you go, well, why should I watch that? Because there's nobody there. So I think you almost need to make that investment up front to make the, the sport feel bigger and better to watch, and then people will watch it. If you rely on um, you know, just natural growth, it would take so much longer. David, what a fantastic personal journey you've enjoyed. I'm sure you've got lots more to, to contribute. Um, it's been fascinating speaking to you. And on behalf of VSI and Downtown in Business, we'd really like to thank you for your time today. Thanks very much. It's been great. Thank you.
Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur, Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the city's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team, the Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison, GB Javelin Champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the Chief Exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the Chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference. Yeah.